Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybetmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Pleasure to be here and to feel all this energy of adult uh, education and uh, all the resources that are involved uh, in it. Uh, when, um, when Rabbi Shmuley uh, asked me to talk about in the afternoon session, um, he wanted uh, me to talk about something that related to Jewish thought and uh, theology, uh, or contemporary Jewish thought, um, and uh, knowing um, his great uh, interest uh, in ethics and, uh, uh, and, the and theological issues, uh, I thought of talking to you a little bit about a very primary metaphor uh, about the face and the face in relationship to ethics and uh, theology. But particularly before I begin, I wanted to just indicate that certainly one of the great crises of the time that we face uh, is the crisis of finding a philosophical ethic. And we'll see that when we turn to uh, Emmanuel Levinas, um, this was the great crisis that he faced. Uh, Emmanuel Levinas uh, was a uh, philosopher in the Sorbonne. Uh, he was born in uh, Lithuania uh, in 1905. He died in 1995. Uh, and he really was a survivor of the Holocaust. And he, uh, his great work, um, uh, 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 totality and infinity, in some ways, is a response to the world of the Holocaust. How do you find an ethic in a world that's filled with war and diversity uh, and, and strife and sorrow? Uh, and uh, the other challenge of our time is not just to find an ethic in a modern world that's filled with war and strife, which is Levinas's problem, but to find an ethic that has a religious component, a religious ethic, so that we can embed our ethical life in a larger uh, theological and religious uh, tradition. So I want to share with you a few thoughts at the beginning about Emmanuel Levinas's notion of the face and the way he tried to confront the crisis of our time, the crisis of finding an ethic that would confront the notion of war and continuous war. That's the way he begins ethic uh, and uh, uh, totality and infinity. He says, is ethics really something we're duped about? Is ethics something real? We look around us, he says, and we're involved in continuous strife, continuous war. And of course, he comes out of the framework of the Second World War, where even as a philosophy student, he was interned uh, in, a, um, uh, in a, a, a prisoner of war camp. 
Uh, and many of his references in his philosophical writings, as we will see, allude to that particular experience. Is there a way that we can think about ethics that provides, he says, a counterpoint to a world which seems to be filled with diversity and strife and continuous hatred and antagonism? And then how does that relate to a more theological perspective, not just in a secular philosophical notion, but also to a religious perspective? The second half of what we will be talking about will be to look at one classic Jewish thinker, Rabbi Moses Cordovero, who was one of the great Jewish mystics and thinkers and ethicists in the 16th century, who cultivated another notion of the face that is dealing with the notion of compassion and intimacy. We'll see that for Levinas, the notion of the face is something austere, something high above, something that commands down, something that we have to respond to um, in terms of all the austerity of what it means to be responsible to another person or to the reality of the world. And from the point of view of Cordovero, he developed a very striking mystical theology of the compassion of the face. How do you cultivate a sense of the face to greet others so that they're not frightened or that you reach out to them uh, in a kind of gentle and spiritual way. So let's start first uh, with a few words about Levinas, and then we'll, because this is a Beit Midrash, we're also going to read a few texts from both of the sources, uh, and then we can have a larger discussion. So as I mentioned, Levinas was born in Lithuania, uh, and because of the situation, in 1905, because of the situation in which he lived, he gradually moved uh, into areas of Russia, and then he began his schooling uh, in Strasbourg as a philosophy student. And he studied what's called phenomenology with Husserl, one of the great philosophers of our time. He even studied with Heidegger. Uh, and gradually, suddenly, in 1961, he produced this remarkable book called Totality and Infinity. Totality has this notion of imposing one truth upon another. Totality is this notion that there is, it's a zero-sum game. Totality is this notion of governments that try to establish a totalitarian truth. Um, it's philosophies and notions of religion that try to be comprehensive, that try to give the answer of truth. And the notion of infinity is this very different sense that much comes to us that can't be swallowed up in simple total statements, that come to us as diversity, as multiplicity, uh, that put us into the framework of humility and responsiveness. Now, when I'm going to say a few words about his general thought, and then I want to look at the text so you get a sense of what his concern was. He has two ways of talking about the notion of face. The first way will strike you as a little bit odd. It's more philosophical. The second will be a little bit more familiar to you in terms of the ethics of the face. So the way Levinas positions himself is to say that when we confront the world, 
when you open your eyes, when you see things, you are immediately confronted by an overwhelming phenomenon of the world. That world is its face. It doesn't have a particular meaning yet. Because if it had a particular meaning, you would be treating it as an object. You would be seeing it in terms of its particulars. But something confronts us which makes us feel responsive to it, that overwhelms us, that has what he says, this overwhelming totality, uh, uh, or I would say this austerity of presence. It says to you, um, it speaks to you not as an I to a thou, and not as a thou to a you. He critiques Buber in that sense. It comes to us as an other. What comes to us immediately in the world is the otherness of the world. It's not me. It's something that makes a, gives a claim upon me. He calls that the face of things. It means the face of things in terms of its whole range of what confronts me as other before I make a personal relationship to it. If I was to begin to confront the world in terms of what I think I know about it, I would be separating things out. And then I would be trying to reduce it to things that I already know. I wouldn't be surprised by things in the world. So he says, behind that realm of personal encounter is first and foremost the world as other. He uses a French term that has become popular, alterity. Alterity means otherness. It means something that I can't impose myself upon, and it comes to me from the outside first. Right? So we often think about uh, philosophy and Descartes, I think, therefore I am. I begin, initiate something about the world. Or I make a relationship with you. He says, no, that's not the way things begin. The way things begin is that something imposes itself upon me, and I have to, and it summons me into its presence. And I do not yet know what that demands of me, except two very interesting things, he says. One is that it's radically different than I am, and the other that it makes a claim upon me that I have to accept its otherness and not impose upon me. So he says, and it's very interesting because this is where you can hear him coming from the Second World War, the primary claim that the otherness of the world has upon me, just as otherness, is thou shalt not kill. That is the primary claim of existence. He says, ethics is the primary claim that's made upon me just by the world that imposes upon me. Now, what does he mean by thou shalt not kill? It means that I don't, my first response is I can't overwhelm it with my thinking. I can't superimpose upon it what I think it is. And I can't distort it into my own needs. It says, so he says, the otherness is something that we call, it has nudity, he says. It's vulnerable. It confronts us, as it were, with the eyes of vulnerability. 
It says, you can't have me. You can't take me for whatever you want. You have to respond to me in terms of its overwhelming significance. And so then what happens? I respond by action or speech. In other words, I immediately enter in to the language of not necessarily dialogue, but what speech does is it says, well, do I understand that rightly? I make a verbal gesture to try to understand it, and then that thing or that person will say, no, you didn't understand me, and we enter in to this infinity of trying to understand each other. It's not as if I already knew what you were. And it's not as if it immediately tells me, it doesn't even kill me. It immediately says to me, I am other. And now we have to enter in to this overwhelming, long-term discussion of where we stand with each other. The same thing would happen with the human face. And then we'll take a look at some of his texts. The human face does this at the social personal level as what the phenomena of existence does. In other words, when I see you for, for Levinas, what makes my first encounter with you ethical is not that I say, you are like me, so I know what to do with you, or I recognize you, so I know what you need or you don't need, because he says, if I began my relationship with you that way, I would immediately be treating you as an object. I see you as someone I already have some knowledge about. I'm already relating to you in terms of a feature of your life that I think I know. And I haven't begun that with the mystery of who you are and you haven't disclosed yourself to me. I've already begun with something. So, when I first confront you, says Levinas, what makes that an ethical moment is that you are other than I am. Now you notice that this is already very different, as I already hinted, at what we might say the notion of Buber's I and thou. And Levinas critiques Buber from that point of view because he says, well, I don't start with my I responding to you in intimate terms, nor are you who are different from me in the immediate situation someone who is known to me in all of your complexity in that moment. I don't begin with that notion of you as a you. I begin, he says, with the third person, the he or the she. Just I recognize that you are not me and that you have an infinity and diversity that's different, and that I am going to have to enter slowly into speech and language and relationship to find out how we're going to relate to one another, and that that's going to take time. And there's an infinity of difference that's going to constantly be changing that. But if I began my relationship with you by saying, well, I know how you were a few moments ago, or I have a thing about you in the past, and I'm going to start my encounter that way, he says, I have forgotten that first moment of you as different. Now, it may be at that moment when you begin talking, I will recognize that we shared something in common, 
that I knew something about that was vulnerable about you. I know something about your historical past. And then we can talk about that. But the first notion is to be aware of this radical difference between myself and the person or the thing or the universe. And he says that's the primary ethical moment. It says, don't kill me. It says, I am other than you. I am different. And then speech begins to establish a relationship and separation. And the humility and the readiness to hear difference because I'm already started from the position of difference. Not a knowing position, but a non-knowing position. So it's, it, you can already see that um, his experience, and you feel it very strongly in the beginning of the book when he uh, talks about, um, he sort of indirectly invokes Hobbes' notion of the war of all against all. And he says, but that is the reality that we experience. There's constant strife. There's constant desire to totalize. There's a constant desire to make one's right the other person's right. And he says, how do you establish a new ethic that totally shifts the ground, that totally shifts the ground to a notion uh, of respect and responsibleness? So that's the final point that I want to make. When the other person or the other thing in the reality says, don't kill me, my ethical response, and again, it's not yet an, a full-blown ethical action, it means I am also responsible for not killing you. In other words, the world of, let's say, let's just start with the world of nature. If I see something beautiful in nature, and from Levinas's point of view, that face of the world says, do not kill me, it means my responsibility to it is that I can't rape nature. I have to be aware of its ecology. I have to be aware of an eco-balance. I have to be aware that there are many other things that I'm responsible to in that world. If I'm encountering another face like yours, and the deep structure of your face says to me, don't kill me, which means to say, I am different from you. You have to let me be in my life, in everything that it means. I am also responsible for that. So I have a primary responsibility to everything that confronts me, not to harm it, but to receive it in its otherness. Now, that may engage me in a whole series of complex relationships. If a person is evil or if a person is good, it may involve a lot of different kinds of changes. That, that's not the end of the matter. It's just the beginning of the matter. So, what that begins with is that the ethical moment is what Levinas is, it's the height. It comes down as something austere. It's radical otherness. From that moment, we then may begin a kind of interpersonal connection and how I express my responsibility towards all that is coming to me. Okay, so now let us, in the spirit, of a Beit Midrash, let's first take a look at a couple of texts of Levinas, and then we'll take a look at Cordovero, and then I want to begin to hear your responses. Remember, this is going to be, how do you begin the relationship with the world or with persons? 
And Cordovero is going to start with a much more compassionate position. But this starts with the austerity of ethics. That the austerity of ethics means that the other is not me. That the other begins the challenge of who I am. I become myself because something that's not me calls me into question. That's, he uses that expression. The not me, the other, calls me into question. Who are you in this at this very particular moment. You have a responsibility to recognize who, what has called me into question, okay? And that's a radical question. It's a radical, so from Levinas, that is the challenge of the 10 Commandments that says, thou shalt not kill. But it's not thou shalt not kill, you shall not kill me. We hear that, as it were, in the claim of something that's other than me in everything in existence, and in particular, in terms of persons. So now let's, I, I took some of these sections from a book that's called Is It Righteous uh, to Be, which are a whole series of interviews with Levinas, because he, he speaks in a very complex way, and I thought it would be more helpful to hear him in a living voice. And in fact, he's clearer in a living voice. Um, so what I'm going to do is, um, just to make it easier, I'm going to do, uh, I'll read a couple of sections and then trying to explain a couple of things, and then we can uh, move, uh, move through this. I want you to begin to see, does, how does this resonate with you? Is this resonate with your ethical experience, or does this challenge you to a new way of thinking about ethics? So the questioner asks, you say that the relation to the face of the other is straightaway ethical. So we said, remember, that my immediate encounter with the face of the other, which could be the face of the world or the face of a person, is ethical from the very beginning because it's making a claim upon me. Okay, so he answers. Ethics, a comportment in which the other, who is strange and indifferent to you, who belongs neither to the order of your interests nor to your affections, at the same time matters to you. So he begins by implying that what confronts me is other. It's strange. I have to see it as different, right? It's not in the order of my interest. I can't begin by the notion that I have an interest in it, or even that I care about it. If I begin by saying, my, if the, he said, the beginning of ethics is not that I care about you, right? The beginning is I have to recognize that it is truly other than me. And then I respond to that. I can't begin even by saying that I wish you well. I have to respond to it by saying, I am that I am coming towards you, and you are not me. And you're making a claim. His alterity, the thing's alterity, concerns you. So it's, it, it confronts me in my world, a relation of another order than that of knowledge, in which the object is given value by knowing it, so he's saying, this moment of ethics is not what we would call knowledge. Knowledge means there's a subject and then an object. So I relate to it I, like I know you, right? Or you know me. But when we have knowledge, there is a kind of objectivizing of things that I think I know about you. Now that may enter into the relationship, but at the very first moment, it is not knowledge. It's an ethical imperative that comes to me from the outside. 
it by for him it bypasses knowledge. So we have we have to take him on his terms. Maybe you'll want to come in and enter that discussion of what knowledge might mean. But he's saying when it happens, it's just that immediate confrontation. I have to recognize that, and I suspend knowledge. I bracket knowledge. I bracket everything, or it brackets the knowledge itself immediately when it happens to me. Skip a line. Placed in an ethical relation, the other person remains other. Right? So I can't assimilate you to who I think you are, or to categories, or any kind of thing that happens. That purse, that thing remains strange, strangerness. That links, that creates this ethical moment. It is a banality, but one has to be surprised by it. The idea of transcendence arises because, perhaps, at this point. So what he means by transcendence is something that transcends me. It's outside of me. It imposes itself upon me, but it doesn't command a specific, it doesn't give me knowledge. It just puts me into a relationship that says, I am responsible for the fact that you will not be destroyed. Now let's take a look at the next one. Now he goes a little further, and the face. The face is not of the order of the scene. It is not an object. So when he says, the face, it's, I don't, it's not like the, I see the flower or I see um, the table. In other words, I haven't yet given it a name. I haven't put it into the realm of things that I know. It just is that confronts me. It is, a, it's the, it preserves its exteriority. To encounter a face is straightaway to hear a demand and an order. So this is another very important term for modern ethics. It's called exteriority. The first thing that happens is the outside claim that it makes upon me, not my think that I know what's going on inside you, interiority, right? Or the interior feelings that I have. He calls that psychologism. That is, I project my own thoughts out of myself or what I think are your thoughts. But exteriority means that we confront each other as beings in the world, and now we can be surprised by what's going to happen in that meeting place. But my first recognition is that that is that and I am I, and that 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 has made me who I am at this particular moment. And then things can happen. So he says, that exteriority, that immediate encounter from the outside, is an appeal or an imperative, right, don't kill me, given to your responsibility, right? So if, if you confront me or the world confronts me, the primary response of ethics is to be responsible that the other has a legitimate right to exist. Now, it may be complicated by evil circumstances and so on, but the first issue is that that is a part of the world. It's another person. It's a creature. It's an animal. Now, I may have to make all kinds of further decisions about that, but the first notion is that it, it's an existing thing that's making an imperative claim upon me. To encounter a face 
is straightway to hear a demand and an order. That is the demand that that face is making. I define the face precisely by these traits beyond vision and confusion with the vision of the face. So it gives itself, as he says, in its nudity, in its misery. In other words, that is to say, in its vulnerability. It is what it is in its difference, its otherness, its vulnerability, its, its need. And that is what confronts me first as an ethical moment. And that also is what begins what we would say the ethical encounter with another person. We tend to think that we come with a certain series of moral imperatives or certain ideals. He says, well, then you're beginning the relationship with all kinds of formal categories of how I should be under this particular moment. And he says, I want to start by stripping everything away and starting at ground zero. And ground zero at the ethical moment is to say, the difference has imposed upon itself. And I say, I say yes to it, and I will be responsible to it. And that is not a knowledge. It's that immediate means of creature to creature in this immediate uh, moment. You notice at the end of the paragraph, the face offers itself to your compassion and to your obligation. Of course, I can look at the face while defacing it, like any other plastic form, eliminating the significance of the responsibility with which its nudity and strangeness encumbers me. That is to say, I can evade my responsibility. I can think I know who you are. I can think I know what that thing demands on me already. I can think I can, or I can turn aside. I don't have to stand there with all that's making a claim upon me. I can avoid it, and then I've defaced you. I've turned you into projection of myself. I haven't let you be. And if I let you be, or the world be, says Levinas, that's infinity. It means everything that's coming, and I only can, I'm only going to get a portion of it. And once we begin to talk, more of you is going to be revealed to me. And then I will be revealing myself to you through speech. But that's only going to happen subsequently to my first need to know that you are not me and I am not you. And I am not the world. I am not all the things that I have to be responsible for. Now, I may then have to create all kinds of other kinds of safeguards to make sure that your life can have the dignity that it needs or that my life can have the dignity that it needs and so on and so forth. But that's down the line. What he's trying to do now is to flip the moral discussion away from the notion that I have the truth or I know your truth and I can then have a claim upon you. That's having a total knowledge or the claim of totalization, the claim of absoluteness, the claim of knowing what's right, he says. In the postmodern world, I can't start with that position. I have to start with the mystery of everything that's happening in all of its complexity. But the complexity in the very first moment of its complexity says only, don't kill me. I am different. And I have to say, I'm responsible for you. And now we have to figure out a way to negotiate that reality. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. 
I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Maybe let's start. You'll be able to go back to some of these others. Um, uh, let me make one other point about God uh, that he does deal with, because he's not directly a theologian, but I just, since he does t touch upon this uh, on the handout num on, on page two, and he deals with it elsewhere, he doesn't talk directly about theology. But what he says, follow me the way, we're, we're, the way, he, the way he would lead us into thinking. He says, when I see your face, or I'm confronted by the face of the world, right? Whatever is confronting me. And I realize that it is radically different than who I am. It is other. It is alter. It is alterity. It is different. I begin to have the sense that it radically it transcends me. And that that notion that something transcends me, says Levinas, puts me in mind of God. What does that mean? It means that I become aware that there is an infinity, infinity of transcendence that exceeds in every direction that can never be named or had. I can't name God, I can't have God, I can't even think God. How could I have my mind get around God? But what I can do is my mind is put, he says, God that comes to mind, that's his thought. What does it mean, God that comes to mind? It's when I become aware that you're different than I am, and I realize that there's a transcendence that keeps ascending, I want to kind of, I'm yearning for that absolute transcendence that comes through you, and you, and you, and the table, and the world, and that there is something that's leading me ever beyond having things as objects or relations. It constantly says, go beyond that. Go beyond that. You can't yet have it. So I, God is a thought that comes to mind, but can, you can't have that thought. How can your head get around God? How can you think God? How can you have a total or true knowledge. He says, our mind can be put into the consciousness of absolute infinity. And the human face is what can begin that process. I don't own you. I don't own the thing. I don't own the world. It is, it ever exceeds my capacity. And that that realization opens me so much beyond into the infinity of possibilities. So I become responsible, in a sense, for everything in the world. And I have to find out the differences of how I'm responsible for everything in the world. But it puts me in mind, responsibility is the ultimate first response of ethics. It is the answer of what Abraham says of Hineni. I am here. Words, I am here, but I'm responsible in your presence. Right? And then we have to work with that. But that's the first notion. So that's very austere, right? It's, there's a very strong top-down demand. That's why he talks about height. It's like, it's really other. He talks about the weight of otherness. Now we have, I want to uh, bring a more traditional notion, which really brings us to 
the compassion, the, a more compassionate ethics, the compassion of the face in the way that Rabbi Moshe Cordovero understands that in the 16th century. It's a religious ethics. And let me first just put the, in, in simple terms, describe what puts this into a theological framework and what the human task is who channels God, as it were. So Cordovero takes very seriously the statement that is made in Exodus 34 where God says his name, I am, right, God says, uh, he gives his name and he says, I am a God, loving, kind, El Rachum Bechanun, Erech etc. I am a loving God, compassionate and caring. And according to the Kabbalistic tradition of which he is heir, God is mercy. That is God's essential characteristic. God is chesed. What does that mean in our terms, says Cordovero? How do we understand that? What does it mean when, it, when the psalmist says in Psalm 89, olam chesed yibaneh, the world is built on chesed. So he says, if God is chesed and he's rachum v'chanun, he's compassionate, loving, kind, it means, from our point of view, the following. God pours existence into the world. He pours possibility into the world. He pours life into the world. Plants grow. Seeds flourish. Semen and eggs become persons. Grass grows. The world keeps, is, there's a generosity that is coming from the Kabbalistic point of view that's pouring into the world. Chesed is generosity. It's the generous giving of creative possibilities that is infinitely flowing into the world. But it's more than that. What is God's generosity in the ultimate sense, says Cordovero? And I think this is one of the most remarkable statements in Jewish ethical literature. He says, if people screw up and they sin, let's say if you use religious terms, or let us say people screw up and they wreck the environment, they, they ruin the earth. He says, God keeps giving life. God keeps giving life. He keeps restoring the world. He keeps giving energy back to human beings. There's some form of the channeling of chesed in the world. If we see the world from the point of view of chesed, is that the perversity of action, from the human point of view, doesn't stop the giving of care. Right? And he even says, God's care is such that where does the evil person get the energy to do the evil thing? It's from the same energy that could be turned to the good. God doesn't withhold the life force. It's a very radical statement. God doesn't withhold the life force for the good person or the bad person. He gives the life force throughout the life to the animal that kills to eat, to the person who kills to eat, to the person who ruins another person's life, 
or into the person who cares for another person. That's chesed. It's given across the board. And he says that, he says, so now where does the ethical side from the human being come in? I, I have to channel that kind of loving kindness. That's what it means to be imitatio dei, to imitate God. I keep channeling love. If a person gets me angry, I have to keep channeling love. If a person disobeys me or moves in a certain direction, I have to channel that constant notion of care back into the world. That's all I can. And then I'm channeling God's life force. I'm channeling it in what we would call an ethical direction, right? Not just in the sense that I would propagate and have other children, but I'm channeling a dimension of God's life force of care through my continuous care of other people, even though they disappoint me, even though they rob a bank, even though they hurt another person, or I have to deal with... Now, so he, then he says what we would today call issues of mindfulness. What do you do to work on yourself? He says, you have, the, the, the chief command at this point is what Jewish ethics would call Greet every person with a loving countenance. So you have, so now what the face means is that I have to work on myself so that I relate to the world with a compassionate face. And we have to work on my emotions so that that aspect shines through my face. So for Cordovero, my face is not just one configuration. My face has eyes, it has a forehead, it has a nose, it has ears, it has mouth, and each of these are different ways in which I express compassion or care or could block it. And so the mindfulness task is to work on the self so that you channel and radiate the chesed the care that shines through the face in all circumstances, even when it is difficult. So here we're now not the austerity of ethics, but a traditional notion of, let's say, that is a starting point of ethics. But then where do you go from there at the human level? How do you then continue in the world in a compassionate way? So let's take a look at a small section from probably one of the greatest works of Jewish late medieval ethics from the 16th century. It's called the Hebrew Tomer Devor, the palm tree of Deborah, and it's by Rabbi Moshe Cordovero. And I'm giving you here the translation of Louis Jacobs. Um, there are others uh, out there, but uh, this, for, for all of the issues, uh, we don't, don't have to go into now, but we'll uh, stay with his, and if you want, we can, I can do some of the Hebrew with you in the question-answer period. But what I want you to understand here is that what Cordovero is trying to do now is to say, how do you imitate God? And there's a famous passage um, in the Talmud, in the Sifrei, in Deuteronomy, the Midrash, which just says, um, how, how, do you, how do you imitate God if we can't be like God? He says, you imitate God's attributes. What are God's attributes in the world? To be compassionate and loving kindness. And so that's the way 
We have to channel that. That becomes the ethical task. And it comes down, from his point of view, it comes down through the configuration of the divine image, which has a face and a body, but that's really merely a spiritual construct. But we have to think about this in terms of ourselves. So let me look at a couple of these notions. He's talking to a person of how do you develop. He uses the term lehitragel. How do you become, how do you habituate, how do you practice certain forms of compassion? How do you make it part of your regular practice? His forehead should have no hardness whatsoever. That's your, your forehead. That is, to have, to have a metzach to be, it means to be you know, severe, stern, uh, tough, uh, disregarding, um, manifest judgment, you might say, in the Kabbalistic and the ethical sense. But should remember at all times the forehead of God's ratzon, God's will, will, his care, his concern. And he should be pleased to accept everyone. Even when he meets with provokers, he should appease them and quiet them with goodwill. This is Kant before Kant. The chief issue is goodwill. But goodwill is, in a sense, channeling God's ratzon hatov, God's ratzon, which is that goodness should pervade existence. Kindness should pervade existence. For the forehead of the will constantly accepts and appeases. So man too, so every person, should appease those whose anger prevails, and he should lead them on in goodwill. So that first task is to work and work on the self so that you channel a good will rather than resistance, anger, hostility, uh, resentment. The, a, a tough face would be the face of resentment, right? Disregard, right? But this is coming through the face because now we're saying that the ethics of the other person, uh, we, we, we are also responsible, if we're responsible for that other person, we're responsible how we greet them in that ongoing relationship so that they too can now enter to, to allow their better self to be released through that. So look now, the ears. The ears be ever open to hear good, but an evil ugly report be barred. So there's a desire to hear the good and not to be constantly listening to bad news or the bad thing or the bad report. This is uh, the, uh, the, the, the Hasidic master, Rabbi Nachman, says to find the davar hatov, the good thing in, the, in whatever is happening, there must be something good in it. To hear the good thing that's happening no matter where it is. right? Because there has to be something good in it. So he says, you should listen, the top of the next page, only to good and useful things. Now there's things that are spiritually developing. Things that will allow you to become a more spiritually engaged person. And other things which cause anger to prevail, you should receive no hearing whatsoever. So in other words, the morally attuned person makes a decision. What kind of things do you watch on television? What kind of things do you read? What kind of books do you read? What kind of persons do you talk to? What kind of reports do you care to listen to? You can make that decision. And that that changes your inner comportment. Ethicists call that a disposition. So you're trying to cultivate a moral disposition. So in addition to the fact that I am not you and you are imposing something on me, I now am going to have to be in relationship with you. And that I have as much responsibility for that by the way I set myself, I dispose myself 
as the way you come at me. You may come at me with a stern face. What do I do? Greet a stern face with a stern face. Or do I try to receive that and turn it towards the good in some way, if it's possible? Some people, it's not possible. But you do the best you can. His eyes should not gaze at ugly things. We're not talking about aesthetics. They should be open to notice and show mercy to sufferers as much as possible. No way close his eyes when he sees the suffering of the poor, but give as much thought to their predicament as lies in his power and awakens the pity of heaven. I choose how I see things. I can choose how I allow sorrow to affect me. If I look at sorrow with glazed eyes, I don't see the sorrow. Now, you have to understand that it's not just, he's now talking about the face. But if you go through the Tomer Devoro, it's the whole body. So, for example, I, I have something to do with my hands. He says, so if I see something, my hand it can either be a closed fist or it can be open. You should open your hand. That's related to whether my eyes are open or closed. And I give charity. It affects whether my body wants to come close to that person or walk backwards. So notice, we're focusing on the eye, but for him, the whole body is an ethical regime, you might say. And it will express itself through proximity, coming close, to opening the hand, to recognizing something. Um, if I see a person destitute, then I give charity, and so on and so forth. The nose. There should be no anger, because the nose is a figure of chariaf, the kind of fury. But there should be all time vitality, goodwill, and great patience. Now, he's not giving, a, there are other ethicists and other rabbinic teachers who teach you how do you cultivate these different traits. And I know that uh, Rabbi Shmuley gives a class on ethics, so, uh, and, and Musar, and uh, he can give you um, guidance and classes of how do you cultivate some of these virtues. So he, we're giving the topic. But the issue is, um, now you have to work on yourself. And, and that is a whole, that's the practice of it, right? There can be all forms of Judaism that cultivate that practice, but these are just sort of like chapter headings and topics. The face should shine constantly, number seven, welcoming all persons with good countenance. In other words, a person has a shining and welcoming face or a gloomy and distancing face. So, too, the light of his face should never change, so that whoever looks at his face find their joy and good humor. In other words, something of the beneficence of existence. We're not talking about just being a simple fool. But there's something of the goodness of existence that you radiate. The mouth, the mouth should produce nothing but good. The spoken word should be constantly Torah, fulfilling the good will, and not allow ugly things or a curse. <coughs> These are the eight good qualities, all of them under the banner of humility. <coughs> and we already saw that humility is that first thing we saw with Levinas, didn't we? Right? Levin, the, to be responsible for the other is to be humble. Right? In other words, I can't totalize you. I don't know it. I'm humble and I receive. You are different from me. And then he says, of course, the thing, it's impossible to do this at all times. 
We slip. Our mind wanders. Bad feelings overwhelm. So the issue is to try to cultivate the good so that when you slip, you can get yourself back as fast as possible. He doesn't say that you, you're always on track. The question is, what do you do when you get off track? Right? Do you deepen the groove of anger? And how do you get yourself back on track? So let me slightly summarize some of the things that we've been dealing with. And then if you want to go back to the text or talk about your personal response or whether any of this is true or it's true to your experience or you want to ask some questions. We began with this sense of Levinas, who, coming out of the Second <laughs> World War, and we know this now, we, we, we live in a century and an era where there, there's war and hatred everywhere you look. And he says, is that the ontological condition of life? Is that, is that the necessary condition of it's my life at the expense of another life? or my truth at the expense of another truth, or my religion at the expense of another religion, or my way, etc. That's the totalizing way. He says that's the way of murder. As if I totalize, it's, it's a form of murder. He uses that language because his sensibility has been cultivated in the Second World War in these camps. But then he flips it to an ethical side. If we want to kind of turn the whole ethical project around and say, no, it, the ethical foundation is not war, but what he calls peace. Peace begins by simply the recognition of the other before we enter relationship. It's just something is there before a control of that, right? And that that will condition how we begin the discussion and the dialogue and the interrelationship. That is a very severe demand, says Levinas. And you have to begin to recognize that first philosophically and then live that out. The notion that what comes towards me is not me. Even any projection of me. So it even, for his point of view, you don't even start with a notion you shall love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, what if you're a schnook, right? right? <laughs> I mean, the can't, person can't be as yourself. He said, that's already starting with an, with, a, with an objective norm. You just start with the stranger who is the stranger, the one near you who is different. And then, there may be then their whole infinite possibility will become disclosed through speech like my infinite possibility will become, and we'll have to work it out. Or we establish political regimes that try to work on all of these things to create the best society possible. What goes on at the interpersonal level may be different what goes on at the social level, et cetera, et cetera. But that is the first austere command, difference. We are different people. The world is not mine to do what I want with. He's not putting that in the first case in theological terms. The theological moment happens, comes to my mind subsequently when I realize 
that there is transcendence that exceeds me. And I become aware of all that exceeds me that I have no claim upon, but that I have to respond to. Rabbi Moshe Kodavero places us in the world as persons responsible for the face that we have and the actions that our face leads us towards other persons. It's not the austerity of ethics, but the compassionate disposition of ethics. From my point of view, the two have to go hand in hand. And you have to start with a recognition of difference. You don't start um, with uh, a, a notion of a certain compassion because then you've objectified the person who needs my compassion. It doesn't mean I can't have compassion, but I don't start there, right? So the two come together uh, in a struggle. So we're faced with both a challenge of ethics and a way of being ethical. Um, two parts of the tradition from a vastly different spectrum uh, but we can hold each in one hand, um, and uh, I give them to your hands, and we have some time for discussion. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. So let's go. Okay, go ahead. It's not really a question, more of, I guess, an observation. So with lovingness, having this perspective, um, I could see how it could be a great path to peace and forgiveness by being able to recognize, you know, that there is another, but maybe seeing that the other doesn't know that and it's okay that we don't know it, but, and you can forgive and go on by that. Um, maybe I'm not so give me an example in terms of your relationship to me. I, like you don't know, like I, I care about you or what, or I may not. Well, I'm just trying to put my mind into, you know, his, his experiences. And like you're saying, he's coming through from the camps. And, you know, how do you reconcile the world? And well, he, I think he's asking, when he begins totality and infinity, he says, are we duped by morals? That is to say... If you look at the world and the hatred and the constant warfare everywhere, is, is the notion of morals a figment of our imagination? Or he even goes on to say that morals is used um, as a secret way of my totalization. So I, I'll give you a little bit. I'll make kind of a, I'll give you a piece of the pie because I really want to control you, right? In other words, I give you something. And he uses examples like that, like, you know, I'll make a compromise with you and I'll give you something. Um, but what he's trying to do is to try to give us, in a sense, a philosophical, secular way that can be linked up with religious tradition, but he's not starting there, to recognize that the beginning of ethics is the responsibility for the other. Right? Uh, now, that, that is only the beginning of a long, hard series of relations, right? Because you could reject it and say, screw you, and I don't want this, or, or we have bumps in the road, right? Or I misunderstand you. Mm -hmm. But if I start with the notion that I don't know everything that's gonna, that you're going to say to me, 
That's your infinity. The same way there's an infinity coming from everywhere, he says you have an infinity too. In other words, that infinity of the self means that I don't, I can't, I, I can't, I don't want to say more about you than you disclose to me yourself, because then I'm projecting myself, and that's called psychologism. I'm that's his term, or Husserl's term. I'm projecting myself into what I think is really going on in your head. Let's just start with what's interpersonal between us, what you just said to me, how you just acted towards me. And let's, let's deal with that, and then I'll respond back. And that becomes that relational interrelationship. Otherwise, I'm guessing what's going on. It may be a good guess, but I, could, I can handle that simply by asking a question to you. And then I still allow you the freedom to talk back to me. And I don't act on the basis of a presumption. You see? That's the difference, that the inter, interpersonal relationship will only have... That's, that's the mystery of speech for people like Levinas, but he's really getting it from Rosenzweig and Buber. The mystery of speech means, um, um, or the way another German speaks so that I know who you are. In other words, so in other words, it's the, it's, it's the disclosure. Speaking can also be certain kind of actions, but it's not me guessing something. I, it would be better for me to ask and then we talk about that. So that is the relational aspect of it through speech rather than, because otherwise I've turned something, I, I'm projecting something and, and it's, an, it's objectifying something who I think you are and he's very much against it. Then that's the, that, is the opposite, that is the opposite of alterity where I respect the difference, right? right? And if you chose not to reveal that. Now it can be, and he says this, the hard issue of ethics, the same way as I can turn aside, in your freedom towards me, you may not disclose everything. And in your freedom to me, you could lie. Right? But that doesn't disrupt the ethical task between us. You could lie, and that will, that will really ruin something. But the fact that I have to wait for you to say something, and then I respond back, and I say, well, I think that you're lying, or it doesn't seem right, right? That may change, but that's part of your, that's your freedom. That's an aspect of this, this infinite possibilities that you have, right? So um, it's not to say that these moments of connection cannot be distorted and screwed up, and that would be naive, and he's not naive. It just means that we, have, we try to create this in the most ethical sphere possible where I'm not imposing anything on you. Um, and that's what makes ethics hard because you have to respect me giving the answer that I give back to you. And maybe for all kinds of reasons, I'm not ready to say a certain thing to you at this moment. That doesn't make that relationship unethical. It complicates it but it is a respectful relationship. So it's not a simple way of talking about ethics, but it's a, it's a, it's a sophisticated one. I, it seems like we can... Uh, this, this is a radical idea. I would think that most of the people I meet are not coming from that 
place of, that's an assumption I'm making on them though, right? But um, You're probably right, that's why you wrote the book. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but so this is given to us to make use of as best we can if we want to. Okay. So let's go down the line. I'm trying to see how to make a practical application of Levinas's philosophy, and it assumes that you are capable of essentially um, blank slate is not the word I'm looking for, but that that you can empty your mind of all the experiences that you've built up in your lifetime, so that you don't immediately call upon that. Um, I see you, and I go, oh. He has uh, vision issues. He's wearing glasses. Why do I think that? Because I know the glasses mean that you don't see well without them. Right, how do right. I empty? I, I don't know if I'm doing this right, but how do I empty my mind of all those things? So that that's you, right. You know, you're absolutely right. So he, you know, he does raise issues like I might see aspects of your face and things like that. If we talk about it simply, we can say. Um, um, in the, in, that, in the first moment, um, I have to call to mind the fact that we are different, right? And then it's not like I have to uh, factor out everything I know, but that may condition the questions that I ask you, what you ask me. Um, but that's going to happen in the between, the, the between between us, right? But I have to begin with a total shift in consciousness that you are different, right? Um, uh, and you wearing glasses may mean a lot of things to you that I just don't understand, right? So I have to be careful even how I deal with that. You, know, you may hope I don't even see the glasses um, uh, or don't want to be the person who is seen as wearing glasses or whatever, right? Or, that may be your true vulnerability. But that has to be a whole lot of things. That is not necessarily, it's not like you have to throw that away, but you have to know how to use it. Right? So you're saying you have to train yourself. Essentially, you'd have to train yourself for that new little instance of the very first encounter. And keeping that in mind at every moment of the question that I ask you, right? That it has. Um, you know, when he says that the other calls me into question, he's, that I have to question myself about what I really know about you. Because you may be different at this moment, and glasses for you means something different for you at this very moment. So and it may not be what it meant in a different mm -hmm. context. So um, I can't forget what I know, but I have to use it respectfully, and that's that first step. And, and keeping that consciousness in mind Right? That I, um, that, in other words, that folds back into a total consciousness, right? You are, you are not me. I am not you. Yeah. Should we go down? Yeah. You didn't touch on this, but I happened to just read this paragraph ahead of time. I'm, he mentions holiness, and I'm wondering if you would be willing to say a word about what he means by holiness? Or how yeah, he uses lots of different kinds of terms um, in Audrey, but I, I think... He sometimes will take uh, over religious term. Holiness, in a sense of what kedusha means, otherness, distinctness, mm -hmm. 
inviolability, right? Um, that if I relate to the world not just in terms of otherness, but the otherness has a holiness. I can't negotiate. I can't trans. I can't. I can't um, go beyond the right boundaries. It has a boundary to it. I have to deal with it respectfully, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So he. It's all. These are all religious dimensions, but they're subordinate to a much larger ethical category. But so in that sense, holiness um, uh, has this sense of um, uh, difference, separation, uh, the sanctity that I can't transgress it. I can't just walk there the, the way I would walk other places. I can't talk that in that place or with that the way I talk in other you know, things, all of that. So he, he wants to access aspects of the tradition. Um, sometimes he uses these things in good ways, and sometimes he uses some of them in not so helpful ways. But that, I, that's the way I would understand that. Is there also an element of uh, not making assumptions about the person based on their group, their, you know, their, their sex, or their age, or their ethnic group? Yeah, because that's totally giving them. Yeah, person. there's a person. There's a person. The gestalt in front of me, if it's a person, is a person, right? But so. a lot of times, I think we jump to conclusions. Right. Uh, yeah. To really say right. That's because that that begins the relationship with a false difference. It's a categorization difference. It's not otherness, right? And so you you you're using slots. Mm -hmm. That's and that's what he's and, and that's. That's the totalizing, right? That that he's trying to get away from. You know, whether, whether, you know, how in what way this is a feasible ethics is. Um, you know, how people look at each other and respond is very complicated. But he's trying to give a kind of new philosophical grounding for that, um, and to think what difference means, what exteriority is. We talk a lot about interiority, right? This is an ethics of exteriority. It begins, in other words, um, the way you appear to me, the way you manifest, the way you express yourself, the way you speak. I give you the freedom to be yourself, and I won't guess what that is until you tell me and we talk about it, or I have to ask the respectful question about it. Right? So now I have to elicit that from you, and you decide whether you want to continue that relationship or not. Mm -hmm. right? And then how that, how that would operationalize itself in groups and in political order is much more complicated, obviously. But um, he's starting at this, this level of, the, of, the, of our opening our eyes to the world or opening our eyes to the other person. Um, and then, then living in a society becomes, so he then, he calls that sociality. In other words, that I become aware that, that there are other uh, people. And part of that issue of sociality for him is um, the same way that I, my first encounter with you is as a she or a he, not, not as a you. Um, he, uh, the beginning of sociality is to realize that um, that law is impersonal, 
and it has to deal with more than one person towards another person. It has to be something that can be create a society that's comprehensive. So there's another level of consciousness that when we have relationship, then we try to have to realize that there are ways that we live together that um, involve certain structures that are metapersonal, right? Yes? Yeah, it seems to me the um, Cordovera material is more about inferiority because it's telling you what you can do. It's almost prescriptive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it yeah, reminded yeah. me of my teacher, Fernand Brito's um, theory about moral DNA that he believes is part of our makeup. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the power of moral inertia um, that mitzvah govera mitzvah. And he explains, and I think what, what Cordovera is giving us is a way to activate the code in our moral inertia yes. by the different ways in which we interact. Yes, no, it's very nice the way you put that. Hadn't heard Hanan Brichto. <laughs> I remember reading. I remember reading all of his books. So um, yeah, I take it you were a student at HUC. Okay. Okay. So um, <coughs> the task he would. I think you're right. There is a prescriptive, um, but the task is to activate um, the imperative to be like God as much as possible. Right. And so it starts with the scriptural statement that God is loving and compassionate. Um, and then that becomes a major, be like me, right? And then to, to access that, um, there is a, you know, there's a Yetzir Tov and the Yetzir Hara. So there is something in the DNA, but it can be screwed, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And so he's trying to say, how do you deal with those two aspects of our nature? And he's trying to say, keep, keep, you know, try to keep something uh, out, a little bit outside of the game so you don't get screwed up in the game. As you said, God doesn't cease to provide that energy. Yeah, right. If we, we turn it into positive right. exactly. based on the answer. Exactly, yeah, right. very nice. Yeah, of course. That's right. Mona, and then maybe we'll stop at that. Okay. Mona's my wife. Um you know, we have a, a tendency to do us versus them, and the neuroscientists have studied that and found that, you know, if we, 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 we tend to hurt when someone else is hurting if we're lying at the fMRI machine. It activates our pain centers. But if that person is another, another race, another mm -hmm. ethnic group, often that's not turned on. Um, and so what, what I think that Levinas has done is taken that basic human instinct of us versus them, which ultimately led to the Holocaust, Right? That's the ultimate objectification of the person. And he's turning it on its head, and he's saying, we can take the us versus the, the him versus me, or vis-a-vis, -vis, and instead of making it a, a power struggle or an opportunity to objectify, we can turn it into a, an ethical imperative, a, a, an imperative of a call to responsibility for the other. To me, this is just brilliant in terms of that, that shift. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, this, this flip, um, it's, and then the hard work is to Deal with it, live the flip. <laughs> right? But you're absolutely right. You're right, right. Yeah. It, it, it took me a while to fully appreciate how radical and how, because his writing, the philosophical writing, is, is just like it's, it's, it's not clear, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> um, and uh, I, 
uh, I must say, some, I backed into a better appreciation. I gave a course at Chicago, I don't know, six or seven years ago, um, on his Talmud teachings. Uh, uh, Levinas, uh, among other things, he was the director uh, of the Ecole des Etudes Juives. There was a, a Jewish school, uh, a high school that he led um, uh, in Paris for many years. And he was famous every Shabbat teaching Rashi. And then uh, once or twice a year, there was a theme, and he would teach a public lesson of Talmud. And there have been a number of books, or, um, some of which have been translated uh, into uh, English. And um, teaching that to some of the students, or actually trying to see the difference between what the Talmudic text is saying and what he reads the Talmudic text is saying, um, forces you to see like what his what his position really is. Because in some ways he's he brings a certain kind of reading to the Talmudic text, but it may, it requires you to kind of then begin to see it over against something. And I began to appreciate it a little bit more on its own terms. And um, um, but th then the real issue is, as as we're seeing around the table, how do you operationalize it, right? So Cordovero, as a thing, is trying to do what, what people we call practice, praxis. He's trying to operationalize it. And um, it's very hard to know how to do, operationalize Levinas. I've been trying to give you kind of just examples as we're going so you can kind of think about that. Um, but but I, think, I, think it, it, I think it may be just enough as a beginning point um, to, to go with what we were just talking about a second ago is that first moment of pause, or it can be you know, a mental pause, it's not necessarily a, a time pause, of, of recognition of the otherness, and that somehow cultivating a consciousness that that stays in mind. How, how that would be done as a moral or a, a practice is a much more complicated issue. In other words, to see otherness even while you're dealing with personal connection, I think that that's part of the, of the difficulty, but I think that's what, what you have to be doing. So it's a kind of deep, you have to internalize that in a deep, deep way, um, and then live a, a try to ethical life with that as the kind of deep structure. I think he, if he could talk clear English, you would talk about it like that, I suspect. Anyway, I want to thank you so very much, and uh, thank you for your attention. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.